0: Welcome to Physicians Off the Beaten Path, a podcast where we have set out to bust the myth that physicians can not venture outside the traditional clinical or research career path. My name's Shad, and I'm an MD and Harvard MBA student interested in healthcare investing and consulting.
1: And my name is Alex. I'm an MD pursuing an Oxford computer science PhD and Harvard MBA, and I'm interested in healthcare
0: investing and innovation. Our guest today is Dr. Ben Robbins. He's a venture partner at GV, formerly known as Google Ventures, which is the venture capital investment arm of Alphabet. Ben's investments focuses on healthcare delivery and neuropsychiatric therapeutics, and he has served on the boards of numerous companies such as Expire Health and Brightline. Ben completed psychiatric training at Massachusetts General Hospital. Before that, he received his MD from Harvard Medical School, his MBA from Harvard Business School, and a bachelor's uh, in arts with honors from Dartmouth College. Ben, thank you so much for joining us, and welcome to the show.
2: Thanks for having me. I'm a, I'm a longtime fan.
0: Thank you. Um, just to start off, Ben, wanted to for those in our audience who may not know your story completely, can you tell us a little bit about your early years? Ah, uh, why you decided to pursue a career in medicine, and then how you eventually decided to venture off the traditional clinical and research career path of a doc?
2: Totally. Um, so I'm from Wisconsin originally. Um, went out to to Dartmouth to play football. Um, initially, uh, I didn't last very long. Um, I played just one season. Um, I had I had um a bunch of helmet to helmet contact and decided it was probably better for my long-term health to move on. I got briefly interested in politics, uh, did an internship with my local senator, who um, was chair of the, at the time, subcommittee for African affairs. And so I got really interested in um, in Africa. At the time, there was a lot of talk of Rwanda in the Senate um, and had a particular interest in East Africa as a result, although I also learned that I have like, no interest in politics, um, which I learned from being in DC. Um, Briefly tried to stay in politics and did an internship at The Daily Show, which was like the funnest summer ever. But I had no real business there and didn't didn't lead to, to anything. But that that Africa thread sort of carried through. Um, I had a really close friend of mine who's now a surgeon at at Indiana. It's got Brian Christie, um, who was very focused on doing a career in global health. I was interested in having a good time in college. Really like Brian um, and figured I would spend a summer with him somewhere interesting um, while he while he sorted out whether he could build a career in developing countries ended up going to Tanzania with a group of pediatricians that had built a pediatric clinic in Dar es Salaam. Uh, there were a bunch of the, the, so the premise of this internship was that we would, um, we would go to this clinic in Dar es Salaam. And basically we were the first of what the hope was would be a whole bunch of college students who would go to this clinic. And it was our job to figure out what would interns do there, just undergrads. Were, were there opportunities to like set up Wi-Fi and paint the walls and all that look like long-term? Where would they live? Ended up meeting this amazing family in Dar es Salaam that was uh, educating kids just in their house. It was a particularly downtrodden area in Dar es Salaam, um, Mbagala it was called. Um, And it was just this amazing family. It was a mother-son that were just taken in. It was mostly AIDS orphans and they were educating them in their house. Um, Got really interested in that, ended up um, taking lots of pictures of the area, of the family, uh, of the school and then we'd bring them back to Dartmouth and people were really interested in, in sort of this family. Uh, we were telling the story uh, to our friends and to our family and we would raise money, we would bring back art that the kids had made or um, the community had made and ended up building a nonprofit in Tanzania to, to operate the school and then built another nonprofit in the U.S. to fund a nonprofit in Tanzania. Um, and through all of that, got really interested in um, sort of novel ways to deliver healthcare. We started to bring doctors out to the school um the the impact was just amazing it was you you would see a kid who was sort of um uh, tired not particularly engaged at school you'd bring a doctor out there and they would see the doctor it was their first time getting in-person medical care um at age six or seven um and they would get you know anti-malarials or anti-parasitics and like 24 hours later you'd see this kid have totally renewed energy the the impact of just you know bringing healthcare to these kids was was profound uh, I got really interested in healthcare as a result, so got got interested in doing uh, pre med. Although it was really late in college, so I had to do a post back at at Bryn Mawr, where I did all my pre meds in one sort of hellish year. Um, and then um, from there, I uh, I uh, got into Harvard Medical School. And when I got into Harvard Medical School, these mentors from Dartmouth pushed me to go to Harvard Business School as well. Um, with the business part being more incidental, and the premise was that was the most effective way to get management training uh, as a physician. So that was my path, and um, I was on a, a pretty straight shot after that into doing you know, domestic healthcare delivery. I had a set of amazing mentors at, at MGH, and, and uh, at the time, partners. Uh, there was Tim Ferris, Ferriss, uh, Sri Chakaturu, Sandi Rao, these just amazing um, leaders within the, within the partners organization. Um, did my most of my medical school year, did my first business school year, and never really applied to anything because I assumed I would do something with, with the three of them. Um, around that same time, um, I started going to these lab meetings, quote-unquote lab. Uh, Atul Gawande was starting this health policy lab of sorts. Uh, it ended up being called Ariadne Labs, but at the time it was unnamed. Just a few people getting together at, in classrooms at the School of Public Health. It was sort of just like you know a blend of... Young healthcare executives, trainees of various sorts, just talking about issues in healthcare. Um, I was and continue to be like a total Atul Gawande fanboy. So I was mostly just like starstruck that I was in the presence of Atul Gawande for any amount of time. Uh, Krishna, who at the time was leading healthcare for GV, started going to those same meetings. I just really like Krishna. Krishna's just a really good guy. I didn't have a particular orientation around um, VC or entrepreneurship. Um, but Krishna was just amazing. Um, his his ambition, the way that he had this platform that he could use for for good, um, build these huge companies relative to the kinds of things that I was interested in at the time. Um, and, and he was just such a such an um, inspiring person for me. Still is. Um, and so I ended up convincing him to let me come to the Google office in Cambridge on guest badges. Um, and at some point, I th- I think it was just easier for him to give me a real badge. So I didn't have to keep opening the door and I didn't have to go to the bathroom in like a supervised fashion. So I wouldn't steal any Google trade secrets. Um, and that was a little over seven years ago. Um, so I joined, I joined the team, um, finished grad school and then did residency in psychiatry at MassGen, which I finished a little bit over a year ago now, just last, last summer.
0: Ben, thank you so much for sharing that entire story. Incredibly fascinating story. It sounds like you were sort of perpetually off the beaten path. From the very beginning, some people sort of go off the beaten path relatively late, like I did, and some of our guests. But what I'm really fascinated by your story is that it's it's all very organic, right? You were interested in football. You, you went to college to play football. Then you were interested in politics, uh, international philanthropy. We'll talk about all of those different aspects and different portions of your life. Then healthcare, and I think that's just fascinating. One of our previous guests, uh, Dr. Dan Gabriel Medine, who's a part venture partner at Flare Capital, he also talks about how he wasn't particularly deliberate about every little thing that he did. He just did whatever was interesting to him and made the right choices along the way uh, to land him to where he is today. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but it sounds like to some extent that was also true with you. And I'm also a very big Atul Gawande fan to the point where. My then girlfriend, now wife, and I were attending a Radiohead concert uh, back in 2016 or 2018 or something at TD Garden, and saw Atul Gwande and his daughter. And instead of leaving them alone, I went up to him and to say hi. <laughs> and he was very, very gracious. But every time I see Atul Gwande, we've talked a little bit because we, you know, I write a little bit, and, and he's been a good mentor of mine. But he's been very, very gracious. Just switching gears here a little bit. You talked about some of the companies and the nonprofits that you've co-founded. You co-founded a company to improve drug adherence at a community health center in Boston and then you talked about the nonprofit to fund, build and operate the primary school for AIDS orphans in Tanzania. Can you tell us a little bit more about these experiences and and what inspired you to go ahead and start your own company and what you learned from them that you still use today?
2: Yeah, so very different experiences. The Tanzania experience was, was and continues to be just this pretty profound experience for me. Um, it was as, as close to uh, something just deeply impactful that I think I'll probably ever, ever be. Um, I would love to find other things like that uh, and to continue those relationships in Tanzania. But it was really just a testament to sort of the last mile of healthcare and how much good healthcare can do when it's, when it's delivered to people who really need it. Um, and we're seeing a lot of that. Um, now there's, you know, the, the, the last year there's, there's been an explosion of sort of novel ways to deliver healthcare in the U S. Um, and so it's really influenced sort of my interest in how to apply those things. Um, as, as the startup world, I think has gotten, um, deeper and deeper into the world of healthcare. There's been a lot of movement towards underserved populations. Um, and so I'm really excited in, in my current role that we're seeing, uh, all this innovation starting to reach Medicaid populations and rural populations and, um, people who are uh, frail and elderly. It, it, so it's it's exciting to see all the movement in that direction in the venture world. The Medication Adherence uh, Company, I think company is the right word. It's probably an overstatement to call that a full-on company. I learned what not to do mostly through that one. Um, that was in, it was sort of a classic thing. I see it now all the time. It was this classic sort of grad school thing where I had all my closest friends who were all basically some variation on just like me. Still very close friends. We were all MD MBAs. There were four MD MBAs and one business guy, Paul Moskowitz, um, all dear friends now, but didn't realize at the time that probably it's best to build companies with complementary skill sets instead of four MD MBAs all with the same management experience. So that was that was interesting. We ended up towards the end of that. We we pulled in a bunch of people who I think actually it was the right team. It was a terrible timing. It was the end of B school. Everybody was about to get jobs. But that was interesting. Um we pulled in a bunch of, um, you know, the right skill set. There were there was a, a strategy guy. Um, one of my close buddies in business school, Carl. There was a computer scientist. There was a general manager. There was a physician with a lot more on the ground experience. The thing that I learned from that um, was was that if you if you bring in novel skill sets to a community health center, there's a lot that people can do. Um, it's hard for people who have deep computer science expertise or product expertise in particular to get access to places like community health centers, where you can really get into the computer systems, you can get into the pharmacy systems, even because these smaller sites, you often have more open access to all of the, the computer systems. And it was just obvious that there was a ton to be done. This computer scientist, he could build graphics into the interface, he could start to build analytics that I had just never seen before in just the healthcare world. And so That was, that was my first time ever seeing if you bring in first-rate tech into healthcare, there's a ton to be done.
0: Yeah, no, I completely agree, Ben. There's just so much focus nowadays on, you know, biotech and creating new sexy therapies. But I think sometimes people forget, uh, at least the general population, how we already have a lot of really cool therapies. People just don't use them in the right ways or in the right combination. So increasing medication adherence. I know there's a lot of remote patient monitoring funding going into this space and a lot of new cool apps going into this space. So completely agree there. I I wanted to quickly ask about one thing that you mentioned. You said that you eventually realized that having complementary skill sets is better than just having four people who are very, very similar. I think this is something that a lot of people struggle with because, you know, for the most part, our friends are people who are, like you said, similar to us, have the same value systems. Maybe for me, it's a lot of docs. Um, So why do you think complementary skill sets are so important? And how do you go about seeking out those people?
2: yeah totally. I mean, so the thing that I've been obsessed with pretty much since that um since that since that experience, you know this is seven, eight years ago, it was it was I, th- I think what I was looking at was product for the first time. um and so you mentioned it, but the thing with adherence is that the problem statement is really clear, right? It's across the board, something in the range of fifty percent of prescriptions are never picked up from the pharmacy. Just like these staggering numbers, and that's, that's really across the board, you know, post-first heart attack, a moment that you think of as, or at least that I think of as being super scary. If you're not engaged with the healthcare system, that's probably going to get you engaged with the healthcare system. The rate of people going from hospital to picking up their first prescription after the first heart attack is in the range of 44%, which is wild to me. So that problem statement, I think, is relatively well articulated in healthcare, the thing that product gets at is how do you think about addressing that problem, right? Um, and we were, we were starting to get at it, um, but it was, it was preliminary. But the thing that was really interesting to me about product thinking was really thinking through who are the key constituencies and how are they served by something, right? So with medication adherence, when people aren't picking up their meds, there's a bunch of things that that could be, right? That could be cost. It could be convenience, it could be lack of understanding, lack of motivation. There's a lot of different issues that emerge in terms of why somebody doesn't pick up their 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 meds. And the thing that's interesting to me about product thinking is that you could really start to think deeply about who are those people. We have a couple of product people at G V. Uh, when when we have them work with healthcare companies, the, the types of things that they do, when you watch it happening, it's it seems straightforward, but it doesn't really happen in traditional healthcare. The things they'll do is they'll get They'll set, up, they'll set up a whole day and they'll go and interview um, patients and they'll do one-by-one one structured interviews, uh, just asking the naive questions and that kind of thing where you're really getting from the ground floor, like, what's happening here? Like, who is affected by this problem and what exactly is the obstacle to whatever it is you're trying to do? Um, that to me is, is, is the, the heart of product thinking uh, and it doesn't, it doesn't exist uh, broadly in healthcare yet. And so I'm excited to kind of bring those skills
0: in. Got it. That that makes a lot of sense. Switching gears here a little bit at GV, I'm sure you've seen, you know, hundreds, if not thousands, of pitches by entrepreneurs at the forefront of healthcare. I'm wondering what are some healthcare trends that you're personally very excited about, uh, and if you could speak also a little bit to whether or not you're able to see certain things differently because you're a physician at GV compared to some of your colleagues there. Yeah. Yeah,
2: for sure. So when I when I first joined GV, this is you know 2014. There were some really great companies out there, no doubt. Um, the EMR companies were out were out there. The early innings of the big services companies, Landmark and Aspire, were were starting to ramp up at around that time. But there weren't that many companies that were hitting on the things that I was seeing in the hospital. Right, I go to the hospital, and if I see somebody who's like me. Uh, right, like relatively well off, relatively um, with it, if 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 I'm allowed to brag. Um, and then you go to the you go to the rest of the hospital. You see like your 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 day full of patients, and it's a wide range of people. Right, there are people that have really complex social issues. There are people that have cognitive limitations. People that have a combination of the two. And when I think of my day in the hospital, at least at Mass General. It's a lot of folks um, who it's really fulfilling to help them, but they, they do need help. Like they really need services from, from the hospital. They're not like the people that I meet in Silicon Valley. Um, the, the startups were largely uh, tilted towards people that are from Silicon Valley, right? They were, they were focused on wellness and um, it, sort of optimization, um, but there wasn't a lot that was addressing the, kind of, the kinds of needs that I was seeing day to day in the hospital that's really started to change over time, that a lot of the, the the startups that I'm seeing now really are focused on the core needs of healthcare, the physician experience of care, the the patient experience of care, uh, social needs, Medicaid. These are things that they, they just weren't uh, existing in mass in the startup side just a few years ago. Uh, and now this trend towards those types of things is really exciting. Um, in terms of the significance of being a physician, I, I felt like I was able to see just really clearly sort of what at least some of the problem statements were. I didn't have the solutions, but I could see pretty clearly like what is social determinants of health and why does that matter? Really obvious if you spend a couple hours in an emergency room, especially in the psychiatric emergency room. Um, so you can see the problem statements really clearly, but it's the startups that are starting to really bring some solutions.
0: Great. That makes a lot of sense, Ben. I'm going to pass it along to my colleague, Alex, now who has a few more questions for you.
1: Thanks, Chad. And uh, thank you, Ben. A great discussion. And especially the point that you've mentioned, basically, when you saw kind of the potential of what first rate technology can do to the delivery and access of healthcare, and how that inspired you to, to create the company and the products that you've worked on. And I think... This rings a bell from my experience where in my master's year, I worked on open source electronic health records and basically digital transformation of healthcare systems. And having no prior experience with health informatics, I realized how transformative the impact is going to be. And that kind of informed my thesis to start a PhD in, in healthcare artificial intelligence because the data that we're collecting in healthcare is, is immensely valuable. So, so moving to my first question, Ben. So you're a psychiatrist, and you focus your investments at GV on companies like Rodin and others that are tackling many unmet clinical needs in neuropsychiatry and neurodegenerative diseases. I know as a venture capitalist, you have to have absolute conviction in all the companies that you invest in. But I was wondering if you can tell us perhaps about a company or two that you're really excited about the exact vertical that they're focusing on.
2: Yeah, yeah. It's a hard question because I'm really excited about really the entire GV Health Services portfolio at the moment. There have been ups and downs over the years, but at the moment things are looking really, really bright for the whole portfolio. I mean, companies that jump out immediately, Brightline, I find really inspiring. It's a pediatric mental health company. It it gets right at one of these um, problems that I saw in clinical training. It was it didn't take take a genius to see the problem, but you know, part of psychiatry training is that you do a child psych rotation, as you might expect. And the wait times were just unbelievable. And this is at, you know, first rate institutions, where people will be waiting nine, 10 months for their first appointment with a, psychiatrist, with, a, with a psychiatrist, and usually that's just an intake. And then it takes another few months to get the first appointment with the actual long term care provider. And for kids, that was painful, right? Because oftentimes what you're seeing with kids is that there's some precipitating event. Something happens at school, something happens at home. Or it's the kind of thing where there's sort of a slow burn, where there's some friction. There's a kid who's down and sad. There's a kid who's acting out. And the, the parents reach a, break, a breaking point. They finally reach out for help. And then it's 10 months before they actually get any help. Um, and, and so the idea of Brightline, I just found to be really exciting, right? There's, there's clearly a problem where there's just not enough supply of, of providers. That's real. There are not enough providers. That's also, I think, in part a bit of an illusion um, because there's a lot of fragmentation in mental health care. And that fragmentation where you have onesie, twosies, one psychiatrist, two psychiatrists in a practice, one psychologist, one social worker, it makes it really hard to access care. Right? You leave it to the patient to figure out, uh, I need care, but what kind of care do I need? There's not a roadmap for do I need a therapist, do I need a social worker, do I need medications? Is it the right right situation for that? Um and then on top of that, it's really hard to know where there's availability. When you have onesie, twosie, really small practices and lots of them like that. It's really hard to figure out how do I get in. Because you call, you know, eight, ten of these places, none of them have availability, or none of them are taking your insurance. It's really hard to to get access. And that's on top of the fact that you don't even know if you're supposed to be seeing this person because you don't know if they have the right credentials. And so there's been this movement, in certainly in adult mental health, but now it's reaching pediatric mental health for the first time, um, where the access issue is really being solved by maybe, uh, surprisingly, um, consolidation. That If you can bring a lot of providers under one roof, you can start to do really creative things, right? Instead of the first stop for everybody being something arbitrary, which is almost certainly going to lead to disproportionate utilization of psychiatry um, or medications, um, you can spread things out. So you have somebody come in, they do an intake visit, and then you can triage, what do they actually need here? Is it a psychiatrist? Because in most cases, it probably isn't. Is it a psychologist? Is it a social worker? Is it none of those things? And actually, you can do something asynchronous or content-based where you're sending the parents information. Um, And so Brightline, to me, it's serving this huge need in pediatric mental health by bringing a lot of different types of providers under one roof and then doing some basic stuff to triage patients to the right care at the right time in order to, to increase access.
1: Ben, that's fascinating. And I guess maybe one follow-up point, I'd love to hear your thoughts on what you think about digital therapeutics and what potential we have with digital therapeutics to actually deliver care in a really scalable manner to the populations who've had trouble with accessing care previously, be it, for example, disadvantaged populations in the US or it really disadvantaged populations and low-middle-income countries around the world, especially that that you've had a first-hand experience with that in Tanzania. So re- really curious to know your thoughts on that. And perhaps a, another uh, tangential point is that digital therapeutics provide a lot of potential, but at the same time, we don't see the same regulatory and evidence uh, rigor that we see in regular biological therapeutics. So how do we balance this out?
2: Yeah, Totally. It's a great question. So digital, digital therapeutics is a space that we at GV have tracked for, for many years now. Um, and there's been a ton of movement, uh, led, we're, we're not invested in pair, but pair has really led, led the way in, in, uh, regulatory pathways and distribution for, for these, these models. Although since then there's been some amazing companies that have emerged, uh, Sleepio, Carrot, a lot of digital therapeutics companies. In my mind, the, the big question in digital therapeutics is around engagement. Um, and so this it gets back to what we were talking about a little earlier with product thinking. Um, there is clearly a role for digital therapeutics, right? And and just to make sure this is tractable, what I'm describing is that this is a physician-initiated, probably prescribed treatment in some way that's for a specific pathology. Um, the, the thing that's obviously quite attractive about digital therapeutics is their scalability. In areas where there's access issues or convenience issues or shame, um, opioid use disorder, there's a lot of folks who are who are using opioids that are, you know, they're not all that down and out. They're folks who are highly functioning, who are, you know, they had a dental procedure, they got oxycodone, and then they got hooked. It's a very addictive medication. It's not that damaging to them, right? They're still holding down a great job, but they're ashamed. Digital therapeutics are really interesting because if somebody's uh, too ashamed to access care, this, this um, um, really low barrier where you don't have to physically go to a clinic, you can get long-term engagement via an app, um, really attractive. Same thing for people that are just really busy and anxious. Uh, If you can't find time for an hour to go to a therapy session, really attractive. The thing about digital therapeutics that I think is limiting is that they're clearly not for everybody. Uh, Again, getting back to something we were talking about earlier, when I think about the world of, of mental health, Oftentimes, the the need in mental health is multifactorial, right? It's it would be unusual in my clinic at MGH to see somebody who is um, purely depressed, or has pure opioid use disorder, and there's nothing else going on. When you get into those situations, I start to I start to see some you're hitting some limits around the digital therapeutics, right? They're not going to get at um, complex social issues. I think it's going to be tough for digital therapeutics to get at multifactorial issues. You know, some people have a primary substance use disorder where really the issue is a substance. Some people have a secondary substance use disorder. They're not, a, they're not drinking alcohol because they're so drawn to alcohol. They're drinking alcohol because they're anxious. starts to get the diagnostics get a little complex. And so in my mind, as part of a, a larger healthcare delivery system, it's a great tool. Uh, as fully standalone companies, I think they basically need to be pulled into some kind of larger infrastructure in order to, to triage the right person to that type of care at the right time.
1: Ben, thank you. This is a really great insight. And I guess building on that, I'm curious to know your thoughts on how valuable the MBA degree was to your journey of the beaten path. And I know that a couple of VCs, for example, around Europe believe that the biggest transformative trends in healthcare are going to come from non-physician founders. We in the podcast believe otherwise. We believe that medical doctors can be amazing founders. So really curious
2: to know your thoughts on, on that point as well. Uh, so the value of the MBA and whether physicians are good founders. Um, you know, the value of the MBA for me personally, those those two years were critical in my path. The actual M- MBA, um, it's, it's harder it's harder to say in, in my world of healthcare VC, healthcare, healthcare entrepreneurship, that's a liability or an asset, I think. There are certainly people in the entrepreneurial community who see an MBA and they think that's somebody who's a little bit too sort of like mainstream, rigid for the um, the hairy, messy world of startups. The thing about the MBA that that I found really important was that time. Um, HBS was an incredibly inspiring institution, just so well organized, so well executed. Great to meet the people, but having that summer off, having some afternoons off after a bit of medical training. That's when I met you know the folks at g v that's when I got to spend time with the folks at at partners in the administration That's when I got to do a lot of exploring meeting these product and design folks who were at at Harvard Business School, um spending time with the younger medical school classes who were trying to build out whatever it may be a maker's space or or whatever so having that unstructured time in the middle of training I found to be profound and really quite useful in terms of the profile of founders you know I think I don't think there is a profile. I think that anybody could really be a founder in terms of background. The thing that I would love to see a bit more of is, um, is sort of extreme modesty from the clinical community, um, that sometimes it feels as though there are physicians who, because they've been so high achieving, they go, to, they go to a great medical school, they've done training that truly is incredibly impressive. It doesn't port exactly into startups. Right. That's a whole different set of skills. And so approaching startups with modesty, I think it could be quite profound. If you have that clinical knowledge, you know, how hospitals work, you know, doctors think, you know, the problems that patients face. And you can take a a modest approach to that doesn't necessarily mean I therefore know how to build a company that fixes clinical workflows or addresses the needs of patients. Um, And in fact, it almost certainly doesn't mean that. The, the people who I think of as amazing founders, amazing executors, they've also trained for many years. It's not the same sort of hard skill set where you know you know the technical details of a medical procedure or the technical knowledge of a primary care doctor, um, but how you build teams when you hire people, um, how you know if somebody's going to be a good investor for your company, um, how to talk to customers. These are all real skills that really do take practice mentorship similar to an apprentice, apprenticeship model in in, in healthcare. And so, yeah, the medical training, I think it, it can be profound and um, incredibly helpful for building a company if somebody can really have the modesty to learn how to build a company.
1: Fantastic. Ben, this is a really great insight because I think one of the risks perhaps in, in entrepreneurship is, is that if a founder has a lot of experience in the space, at some points of time, they may think that they really know the problem and they stop asking the customers or may, may stop being curious about it. And that may introduce uh, some, some risks there perhaps. I guess moving to my next question around venturing off the beaten path. So obviously doctors in many cases tend to be r- risk averse uh, and prefer to take options that are less risky and more certain. Uh, so I was wondering how did you deal with the uncertainty of uh, going for an untraditional career? And what advice would you have for medical doctors who want to pursue a similar path to yours in terms of going into venture capital, what steps can they take very early in their education or career journey to prime themselves for success on the similar career path?
2: Yeah, it's great. It's great questions. You know, I will say, the. I think if I were to look at my mentors, um, almost certainly, I think for each, each one, if you just like shifted one or two key details of, of their background their ultimate trajectory would be totally different, probably still very high achieving. Um, But, you know, when I think of hospital CEOs around the partner's system, a lot of those folks were training in the, you know, the seventies, the eighties. If you just, if you just take that same person and put them into the 2010s, they're probably going to end up doing something substantially different um, and vice versa. And so I don't, this this is certainly my personal take. And with um, you have to take it with a grain of salt because this is my, my own experience, is that starting with the exact thing that you want to do outside of a traditional career path is probably not the right approach. That um, if, if I were going to restart this, I probably wouldn't set my sights on VC and try to become a VC because I think you would probably close off many opportunities um, because each person is going to run into different people. Uh, there'll be a different circumstance. And so the thing that I found to be really helpful to my own career was just getting out there. Um, I think a lot of folks are overwhelmed in medical training. Uh, a lot of folks uh, have relatively insular communities in medical training um, of people who are either in their medical school class or in the residency class. Getting outside of that um, can be really helpful, especially for folks that are in these major cities. You know, you know, Boston, San Francisco, New York, Chicago, Nashville. Uh, there's a lot happening that's not in the medical school as much as it can often feel like medical school is like the whole world. It's not. Uh, And so getting out there and just going to some events awkwardly by yourself and not knowing anybody uh, almost every time that I have seen somebody do this. uh, I think every time it, it goes great. It's uncomfortable. You go, you don't know anybody, you meet one person and that's it. And even that one person, it's like a very like, you shake hands and awkwardly have a drink in the corner, but then you know that person at the next one. And you do this every every week or every couple of weeks. And eventually there's a community. And in most of these cities, there's not that many people that are interested in sort of like novel approaches to whatever it is you're interested in neurodegeneration, cancer therapeutics, healthcare delivery. Uh, and so just getting out there and starting to get to know those folks will almost certainly open doors and lead down paths that you, that you couldn't have foreseen had you not just gotten out there and met people.
1: Ben, it's really like a chemical reaction, right? Like, because the rate of the chemical reaction relates to the density of the molecules and the rate of them interacting with each other, right? So totally 100%. Kind of, If you surround yourself with, with very talented and very interesting people who have diverse background expertise, and you increase the rate of your interaction with them, like that just increases the rate of you're coming up with like really interesting ideas and really interesting projects so that's very valuable insight and i think it reminds me of one of the things that one of my mentors told me which is like you cannot over engineer your career you need to optimize for the positions or the opportunities that maximize your learning and doing things that you're passionate about uh so i really appreciate sharing the insight there a hundred percent
2: interestingly that is that is in in healthcare that's one of the only areas where that isn't necessarily true. You totally can engineer the crap out of your career as a doctor and start trying to be a neurosurgeon when you're 17, which seems to be at odds with doing anything that's that's off the beaten path just because uh, in order to do that you can't just start with I want to be the startup equivalent of a of a neurosurgeon. It starts with meeting people and seeing what the opportunities are. Maybe it's a startup, maybe it's an investment firm, maybe it's a nonprofit or a health system. But you can't really find any of those things just by um, hanging back and, and letting medical training do, do what it will with you.
1: Absolutely, Ben. And I think, as you've said, it works in medical training. But if you apply the over-engineering approach of medical training on like, the non-clinical career path, like, it just doesn't work. So I absolutely agree with you on that point. I guess my last question is around The Daily Show. Why did you go for the internship at The Daily Show? And what did you enjoy and learn from that amazing experience?
2: Yeah, I don't actually get a lot of questions about The Daily Show. It was a like, 12-week internship in 2005. But that being said, what happened was I did a Senate internship, um, loved the senator, but did not like the politics. It it, it felt it felt like there was just a lot of gamesmanship that I, I just didn't really want to be around. But I liked the idea of politics, so I figured The Daily Show was a way that I could like keep my foot in the door in politics. And similar to how I'm an Atul Gawande fanboy, I'm like a huge Jon Stewart fan also still. The, it ended up being quite fortuitous later. Uh, maybe this speaks to getting out there. They did this thing, so they they assume you're an idiot because they have to when you're an intern. And so the, the basic things they have you doing at baseline are like literally opening the mail. At the time we would transcribe these like news segments and it was like lots of them or even whole movies to make it so it was searchable inside the Daily Show by text as you would just sit there typing. Um, but they would do this thing where John Stewart is a really, he's an unusual manager. Um, he would pass around this, it was a, a literal, um, I think it was a clipboard or a notebook or something. It was, it was a piece of paper that he would pass around. And you would just write your idea for a segment on this piece of paper and whatever length. It was usually like a paragraph, but there wasn't, there wasn't any, any bounds around what it is you could write. And I started getting into that. So I would like read random local newspapers and odd news stories. And one of the segments in the Daily Show was the correspondent piece. Where the basic idea is that you find some kind of conflict, pick the wrong side, and then exaggerate it. That's like the basic premise. Um, I submitted a whole bunch of concepts for these for these skits, uh, for these segments. Um, two of them got accepted at least for production. One of them was really weird and totally unrelated to medicine, where it was like this cow had like died and gotten stuck in a river, and it was between two towns, and both towns were trying to push it off the other one, um, but it got washed away, and so it. it it got washed away before the the production team got there, so they couldn't film it. The other one, it happened to be about healthcare, which was just like I had submitted probably fifty of these things, and one or two were about healthcare, and it happened to be a healthcare one, which was great for my medical school applications later. But it was like a school lunch thing where there were parents that were trying to ban cupcakes from schools in New York, and we picked the um we picked the side of the. So we exaggerated the side of the parents who, who thought that you shouldn't have any baked goods in schools. It wasn't a good segment in the end. It was terrible, but it aired. <laughs> and so I was very proud of it. Um, uh, it was the health scare with Rob Riggle, um, which are usually very funny. But that particular one, I did not find to be very good. And of course, it was the one that I had written the premise for. So John Stewart, the things were interesting were that he was very egalitarian. right? He's pulling from anybody who wants to set, submit an idea for a skit, and he looks directly at every idea. He himself. That was interesting. Um, so he was relatively horizontal in that way. The other thing that I saw him doing that I still find inspirational, and I still actually use this um, today, is that he would cut things from the show um, if they weren't funny. And it would be like things that looked crazy to me, where you'd, he would send out, you know, Ed Helms, or a top correspondent, Stephen Steve Carell was at The Daily Show at the time. Right? He had just left, I guess, but Ed Helms was still there. And Rob Corddry, It was these amazing comedians, and he would send them out with this production crew. They would spend all day or two days filming something, uh, whatever it may be happening around New York. Um, people are really excited about it. They really want to make it work. They're they're filming it. There's a final thing that's about to go into the show. It's 3.30. The show films at 4. And he'll just cut it. It's not funny. Like It's not going in the show. And we'll figure out what else to do. But we're not putting not funny things into the show, no matter how painful it is. And that was an interesting lesson. I saw him do it. And it was just like, holy crap, I just couldn't, I would, I would sit with this production team that I'd be embedded with for a couple of days. They clearly thought this thing was going on the show. And then John Stewart like, no, this isn't funny. It's off. Um, and that, that applies to companies for sure, that people get stuck on ideas and try and force them through. Um, and when it's not working, they'll still try to force them through. And it takes an unusual leader to, to look at all the effort that's gone into something that isn't working and then just to cut it. And John Stewart seems to be a master of that.
1: Ben, I'm a big fan of generalist thinking, and I love the analogy that you've just made between basically the management style and how early stage companies are run. So Ben, how can our audience learn more about the work and the impact that you're doing and kind of follow on all the exciting things that you're doing at the moment?
2: Yeah, I mean, it's mostly just through GV media. Honestly, Mandy from GV does much more social media than, than I do. Um, so following the GV investments, the GV social media, I'll do a lot of retweeting, but I don't, I don't do a ton of social media stuff. Um, but yeah, following GV, following the healthcare portfolio, we, we certainly make announcements and promote all the all the companies that we, that we support.
1: Ben, thank you so much. This has been an amazing conversation. Thank you, guys. Chad, that was a fascinating conversation with Ben. I really loved the discussion and all the insights that he's mentioned. And I think one of my key takeaways is around how he described his experience co-founding the company that aimed to improve drug adherence. I think he described it in a way that showed his learning mentality, which I think is immensely important if you want to pursue a career outside the traditional path. Because inevitably, you will fail, and you will fail a couple of times until you succeed. And I think it's very important that you approach every failure with a strong learning mentality, aiming to really go for the experience for the sake of learning and for the sake of building the skill set or tackling a problem you're passionate about. And I think this is important in the, in the medical world, because as clinicians it is very easy for us to over-engineer a successful career path. And that's because career paths in clinical medicine are very linear. Like, you know the steps that you need to do to get into a very competitive medical school. You have to get very high scores on the MCAT or be it whatever other test. Then to get into a very competitive residency position, you have to get like very high USMLE scores, etc. So you can really over-engineer that path and reduce the risk. Whereas if you're going on an untraditional career path, there is a higher risk percentage. And it is it is very difficult to over-engineer uh, that career path. And because of that, you'll be exposing yourself to failure. But the most important thing is that failure is a part of success and approaching it with a learning mentality is very important. That's on my side chat.
0: Yeah, no, I completely agree, Alex. Um, my main takeaway was around complementary skill sets. And, and the first thing I wanted to mention is that being a doctor or a researcher is of course incredibly incredibly challenging and and you need high you know eq you need to work very hard you need to be intelligent that's all a given but there's so much you know a recurring theme of our podcast is there's so many ways to have an impact out there and there's very very different skill sets needed to for example start a company and then take it from ideation to traction, and then all the way to a public company. I was speaking with uh, a CEO of a large uh, biotech uh, a couple of days ago, and he said something that I thought was very striking. He says that between him and one of his colleagues, he's only met five or six people in his 40, 50-year career who are both good at taking a company from ideation to a small, robust company but also good from taking it from a small, robust company to a public biotech. Those are incredibly different skill sets. One requires more scientific knowledge and and a stronger understanding of what happens in the lab. Another one requires an understanding of the regulatory landscape, the commercial landscape, the different players in the system and what their incentives are. And so having an appreciation of these complementary skill sets is very, very important. Sometimes docs because we are high achieving and we're intelligent and because we've done so well in our careers, we think we're good at everything, you know, starting a company and, and taking it public. That may not necessarily be true, but that comes also back to what you were saying about having a learning mindset. So what I would say is if you're starting a venture, seek out people with complementary skill sets. Don't just rely on your friend from residency or your friend from pre-med or your doctor friend who has the exact same set of experiences and knowledge base as you. But that begs the question, how exactly can you meet people with complementary skill sets, right? That can be challenging. For some people, they go get an MBA, they network, they meet people from all walks of life. And uh, that's certainly an effective but a very expensive way to meet people with complementary skill sets. Another thing is what Ben mentioned, uh, which is if you move to a new city and if you want to get plugged into the investing entrepreneurial base or the community in that particular city, just attend all the free events, entrepreneurial or investing events that take place in that city. Maybe awkward at first where you don't know anyone and you might be the only doc or pre-med or medical student in that particular community or in that particular event. But go up to someone, say hi to them and build those relationships. And over time you'll realize that you have a good grasp of who the different People are who are interested in those things. Through those events, you can meet people who are interested in some of the similar things that you're interested in, but are coming at it from a completely different perspective and may have that complementary skill set that you need to uh, to start a venture and succeed. So always keep in mind. Always be humble. A about your limitations, and B keep in mind that uh, it's important to seek out people who have different skill sets than you when you're starting a venture. So with that, we're going to end our episode. It was, like Alex said, a fantastic episode this week. But join us for our next episode where we continue to talk to docs who have ventured off the beaten path and have done some amazing things in a whole host of careers. And remember to follow us on social media, on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at podcast, And to catch our latest podcast on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. To get in touch with us, you can email us at Physicians off the beaten path at gmail.com or visit our website at potbpodcast.com. See you later.